0: Welcome to Pathways. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. My guest today is Dr. Patricia Ward. Dr. Ward received her PhD degree in immunology from the University of Chicago. Following graduation, she was a postdoc in an outstanding virology laboratory also at the University of Chicago, where she studied the molecular cell biology of herpes simplex virus. In her mind at the time, her goal was focused on a career in research and teaching. It was while she was looking at faculty positions that she developed. As she says, a bug to do something different. And she did. Currently, she's the Director of Science Exhibitions and Partnerships at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. How did an immunology PhD lead her to being a director at the MSI? Let's find out. Patty, welcome to Pathways. Thank you. Tell us what your responsibilities are as a director at the MSI.
1: Well, um, I've been here a number of years and I started out as an exhibit developer. So when I first came, I was developing and researching content and thinking about different kinds of experiences that people could have in our exhibits. I've stayed in the exhibits division all the time that I've been here at MSI. And for the past about nine years or so, I've been director of the department. So I have a team and about half of the group are content folks, so they develop uh, research content. They're exhibit developers, content researchers, uh, coordinators. They work on exhibit teams to produce our science exhibitions. I have a wonderful assistant, uh, helps us keep everything glued together. And then I actually have a staff that has a, a different, very interesting job, and they take care of all the live organisms that we have here at the museum. We have a couple of exhibits that feature a chick hatchery, some genetically modified organisms within the context of our genetics exhibit that help people understand uh, what those kinds of science and technology um, applications can be. And so I have a team that takes care of them. So I, uh, I manage this department, I lead project teams. Um, I do a lot of things throughout the museum, different kinds of committees, um, you know, you name it. Being a, I think a lot of folks that, that have that kind of responsibility know what it means to run a department
0: How did you find out about this type of job in the first place?
1: Serendipity. (laughs) Absolutely. In in a nutshell, I was, as you mentioned in your introduction, I was uh, on my pathway to finding a faculty position. I was interviewing and thinking about that and just um, becoming a little bit more antsy about thinking about something different. And so back in the day, uh, one didn't search for jobs online because that wasn't a thing. So you looked in journals and and whatnot for jobs and talked to people. And I was paging through the job ads in the journal Science, and I saw an ad to be a developer at the Museum of Science and Industry. And I thought, wow, I don't know what that is, but I want it. And that was kind of, (laughs) that was my introduction to uh, kind of seeking this out. And that's what I pursued. And that's what I did.
0: It probably helped it was in town as well.
1: Yes, I think the connection, um, the, the person who hired me had a similar background as I did and was looking for somebody who came from an academic institution who knew the content, who understood that, who knew what it meant to work in academic um, uh, science, could make those connections and really had a deep understanding of the content we were trying to express. So that worked very much in my favor.
0: Uh, I, I think all the that serendipity is, is great. So- Maybe you could tell us a little bit, when you first started at the MSI, what did the typical day for you look like?
1: Well, it's very much like today. The typical day is, is there isn't a lot of typical, <laughs> typical um, behavior on any given day. So what I started out doing, um, which happens also today when I'm working on different uh, exhibition projects, is we dig deep into the content. We try to understand it. We, Try to learn as much as we can about a given topic. Um, Look outside the institution to find out who's doing work. Where where are the big questions? What's important for the public to know and understand? That's the primary audience that our exhibition serves. They also serve our school audiences. So I also talk to my education colleagues to think about what's important for teachers, what's important for their students. Um, But our job is to make the science um, relevant, help people understand how it works into their day to day life. how to interpret the content um, such that it's not um, too academic in the sense that it involves a lot of jargon or concepts that are hard to understand and hard to realize um, why people should care. So that's really the goal is we have to help people understand why convince them. Why should you care about this? Um, Why is this here at the museum? Why are we trying to get you to come to our exhibition? So on any given day, I might be doing a lot of content work. I might be in meetings uh, with my colleagues, with external partners. I might be talking with people outside the museum. Um, I might literally be outside the museum, visiting other places, Um, a lot of different things.
0: Let's go right back to the beginning. Have you always been interested in science? Or as I like to ask our guests on Pathways, when were you bitten by the bug?
1: Well, it, that's kind of interesting, too, because as a young kid, I really wasn't very interested in science. I was much more interested, and I still, still am interested in the arts and literature and things like that. Music, I was very interested in music. Um, and I would say that at the time that I was going to elementary school, science, the, the whole thinking about the way science was taught um, was not terribly evolved I think uh, we have grown leaps and bounds in recent decades on how science is taught and, and really a lot more emphasis on engaging students, It was just really different at the time that I was doing it in my early, uh, before high school. So, but once I uh, got to high school and I was taking, I had to take biology class, wasn't that I was seeking it out. I not only fell in love with the content, I loved it, uh, but I also had a really fantastic dynamic teacher um, that, that really the, the two together, I think, uh, kind of lit the spark for me. And I remain very, very interested in, in biological systems, things like that. So one thing led to another.
0: So are, is anybody in your family, uh, scientists, parents, siblings? No. No. In fact,
1: <laughs> years later, I remember my mother saying to me, just like really puzzled, like, how did this happen? <laughs> how did this happen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not yes. so much.
0: Wow. Your training environment—you were in ver- two very, very, very good labs in the University of Chicago for both for your PhD and for for your postdoc. And your thinking at the time was, well, "Yeah, I'm going to go to academia. I'm focused on that way." And you've even you even interviewed for faculty jobs. But when did that change for you in terms of career path or what you should would go for? I know you mentioned that you saw that ad in Science, but but what really really, I guess, caused you to push a reset button.
1: Right, right. Well, I would say that the content, the topics of research have always been the driving force. So, for example, why I chose the immunology lab that I chose is because I had worked for a short time. I was a laboratory technician uh, just after I finished college. And because at that time, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And it so happened that the lab that I was in was doing research on immune cells response to um, and metabolism of certain kinds of cancer drugs. Um, And I had been very interested in in immunology in having taken a course as an undergraduate, so both immunology, parasitology. Prior to that, I had actually been a zoology major and very interested in, in animals and things like that. So I, it was if I trace it back, I think there's always been kind of an interest in a host pathogen sort of scenario. So those kinds of content areas really drove me and drove my choice also to the herpes simplex lab, um, aside from the fact that I also wanted to learn molecular biology because I had done all cellular immunology. And then as I was um, looking for the next career step, I just found that as I was, um, identifying potential positions, uh, applying for them, doing interviews. I just was looking ahead and I thought, you know, my field is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. You get more specialized, as you know, if you go into an academic degree, academic um, uh, career, your focus tends to get, at least at the time, tended to get much narrower and deeper as opposed to broader. And I just felt restless. I felt that I wanted to explore a little bit more broadly. And I started, and I looked at a whole variety of different um, endeavors, it it just so happened that I then eventually found this job at the museum, but I was looking at publishing, I looked at industry, I thought about teaching, I could have stayed where I was. Um, And I tried a little bit of a variety of things in, in certain ways, either through just connections with people, talking with them, trying to expand my understanding of different fields or applying for jobs. Um, and then landed on one that I really liked. But I also kind of recognized that during my postdoc, when I reflected back, I thought, well, when we've had groups of teachers come through the laboratory and, and the idea is they want to tour it, who's going to talk to them? I always volunteered. I always volunteered for, let's do our journal club and let's bring it into a kind of a broader discussion of how is this research relevant to a larger story. And so I can connect the dots Um, very much it's in retrospect though at the time I was just sort of following interests as I think I had done prior to that.
0: So I guess in, in some ways you're preparing yourself to communicate science to a broader audience in many respects.
1: I think that's true. I think that's true. I also really enjoyed, um, it was not exactly the same thing, but I re- always really enjoyed working with the undergraduates in our lab. Um, and when I was a postdoc with the incoming graduate students, because they're not um, constrained by an exceptional amount of knowledge at that point, They're they're open, right? And so the kinds of questions that you get really come out of left field, right field, (laughs) anywhere you can imagine, it makes you think differently. And that was very appealing. And I think, again, in a very general sense, that just contributed to me looking a little bit more broadly than I had looked before.
0: One of the things I believe that our our listeners really think about, either in a lab, whether they're they're graduate students or postdocs, the question is support by the mentor for you looking at something other than an academic career. In your circumstances, how, how supportive were they or did you have other mentors you look to, to to help you in terms of guiding you down a non-academic career
1: path? Um, c- I can't say that I did. <laughs> that again was really not the, the inclination Of a lot of researchers at that time, and um, particularly a place like University of Chicago, where um, especially in past years, and I think that's changing as it's changing for a lot of different research institutions, their job is to educate new academic scientists. And that is a, it's, it's part of a measure of success of the principal investigator of the laboratory. How many of their young scientists are going out and establishing uh, research laboratories of their own. So there was a lot I really loved about that. I mean, obviously I did it for quite some time, but um, it was unfamiliar for these um, these established scientists. It's not pathways that they ever, um, you know, pursued or, or people tended to pursue at that time. I think it's becoming a lot more common. So. I would say that um, in retrospect, they became supportive, but that was not um, a thing I relied on at that time.
0: When you, when you shared those interests that you had, really, who did you share those interests with in terms of trying, because you always want to bounce things off of people mm-hmm. because it's, it's so different than going down the, the fac, towards a faculty route.
1: Right. Well, I did have some colleagues that I could share these kinds of ideas. Um, it's it's fair to say that in some places, and I think that's true today as well, that it's not a um, it's not a wise move necessarily to broadcast that interest um, that can then maybe be at odds with with the goals of the lab or the goals of of the principal investigator. So, um, I, I was able to share um, some degree of broader interest with my uh, mentor for my uh, postdoc lab because I was much more involved at that point in that laboratory. Um, and that individual also had other interests in, you know, lots of keen interest in music and the arts and things like that and literature. Um, but it was. Um, kind of a just an unfamiliar field. He was very supportive as I was going through the application process for the job here at the museum um, and I was open about that. I shared that with him. So that was um, that was not a, um, a difficult conversation to have but it was so unfamiliar for him that that it was completely unknown. So I shared it with friends and colleagues um, people close to me in, in my world outside of, of the laboratory just to um, think about it and I will say a lot of my colleagues were were really excited about <laughs> it. They thought what a great idea and, and more power to you essentially.
0: No, that's great. That's the kind of support that that you want. So let's yeah. let's take another step back and let's think about your first day on the job at MSI. You know a newly met, you have a PhD, you had a postdoc under your belt, published number of papers and you've walked into the museum of science and industry in exhibitions and you're what are you doing what are you thinking on that day
1: <laughs> well i will say that um fortunately i never had the feeling of oh my gosh what did i do it was all it was really exciting um, i mean you walk into a place like msi and first of all it's just it's so brilliant to look at. I mean there's so much to do. It's so it's it's just immersive, it's exciting. It's you see the public, it is really you never lose that sense of amazement and and wonder like wow, how did I get here? <laughs> so that's that's really neat. Um I started out basically really like saying thinking I don't really have any idea what I'm doing yet. I will just do the best I can and you you know you just take on, I mean, I I had a boss, this person gives you a few assignments, you sort of dig into those. I would say one of the most um, kind of daunting and then rewarding experiences I had in those first few months, though, was I I was developing content for uh, and experiences for a genetics exhibit. And I was, uh, we, as I alluded to earlier, we were displaying or planning to display some live organisms in the exhibit as a way to... Uh, represent some of the genetic science and genetic technology in very concrete ways that people could understand. So at the time we were developing and I developed this relationship with a researcher at the University of Hawaii who was um, the first um, researcher, first laboratory to produce cloned mice. And so we were able to obtain some cloned mice from this laboratory and we had them here at the museum and my job was to um, create some interpretive signage and Literally go out um, with these mice and some little little brief amount of content um, to engage with our public and just start talking with them and and that was sort of a daunting assignment it's like oh my god the public I need to <laughs> talk with them about this but it was incredibly um, useful and rewarding and stimulating because. People and you know, the mice are in a tract right there. They walk up to you wondering, what is it that you've got here and why do you have them? We had a big sign that said cloned mice and then a few other provocative titles like twins and clones and, and things to try to help people understand uh, the science and the technology underlying them. So I spent many weeks um, together with a couple of other people. We, we traded off a little bit of time and talked with our public about um, what they were seeing and, and listened to a lot of their questions many of which found their way directly into the exhibit.
0: Uh, and, and that's pretty interesting because the lay public doesn't always think about the fact that identical twins are clones. Right. They're genetic copies of, they're identical copies right. of one another, mm-hmm. which is right. quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in, in your answer to the previous question, you, you talked about some things that are daunting and, and maybe you could tell, tell us a little bit about what parts of your job you find to be the most difficult? And then I'm gonna, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll flip it in the yeah, next question.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that um, there's just some phenomenal challenges that that are, they're, they're daunting, but that's what you look for as well. That's what keeps this job so fresh and exciting. So for example, we just, um, open this year two exhibits that are related to very challenging topics. One is called Extreme Ice and it's about climate change using melting glaciers as a interpretive lens. So we had a really wonderful um, partnership with a photographer, an artist who travels around the world, takes pictures and, and video footage of melting glaciers and has uh, produced some amazing um, documentation of this phenomenon. So presenting that topic to the public in a way that is different, not overloaded with a lot of data that people have either seen or are um, maybe a little bit daunted by, like take, you know, it's maybe it's hard to understand, hard to see the relevance. This was a very visual um, way that we could tell this story and try to bring it a little bit closer to people's real lives, understand this is our actual planet that this is happening to. And very similarly, but an even greater challenge was an exhibit that followed that. And it was a partnership with um, an organization called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which are affiliated with the University of Chicago. And you may be aware that this year is the 75th anniversary of the first sustained uh, nuclear chain reaction took place on the University of Chicago campus. So they were the uh, when they were founded in 1947, after the Manhattan Project, after World War II, and after dropping the atomic bomb, They also created a very um, iconic popular culture symbol called the Doomsday Clock. And so it's the 70th anniversary of the creation of that clock. We created an exhibit called Turn Back the Clock. So how do you take a topic as incredibly deep and complex and nuanced and frankly quite frightening as existential threats to our human existence and make that accessible to a general public audience? That was probably one of the most daunting creative challenges we've had, or I've had, uh, leading this team. So, but at the same time, you know, like every job, there's a certain amount that's grueling and, oh my God, I have to still work on this. But there's so much there to learn, so much um, more in terms of new ideas, new people that you meet, new experts, new creative partners, that it's never a dull moment.
0: So I take it that's part of the rewarding aspect of your job as well.
1: Absolutely. And then, of course, seeing the public engage with with your exhibits and hearing from them, you know, the, that's the audience. So that is um, essential to our work.
0: And the, the interesting thing, too, is the two topics that you mentioned, the two exhibits, the one on on global warming and then say doomsday clock. Right. Those are those are science topics that are somewhat that can be uh, introduced into the political arena as well and you're presenting it in a way where you take where you leave the politics out and just talking about the science.
1: Well it's interesting with uh, the turn back the clock is that we did talk about policy um, because we we didn't have really the space um, or and we didn't think it was the right approach to dig so far deep into the science and technology of both nuclear weapons um, and climate change, which is the other uh, element, the other uh, issue that the Doomsday Clock takes into consideration when they're they're setting it. Um, But we did want to talk about the importance of people's voices, scientists, policymakers, and the public in considering these issues because they play out in our real world. So it was a really great opportunity to think about how do you contextualize these overwhelming issues in real life they are really happening Um, and call attention to the notion that it is human beings that created these amazing um, advances in science and technology and the applications thereof it's human ingenuity and will that's going to keep us safe
0: you have as i mentioned we have graduate students we have postdocs tuning in so what would be your message to them if they're hearing you and thinking gosh you know i might like to try something like that what advice would you give them if they wanted to explore non-academic career paths
1: i would say um, i mean it's almost too obvious to say but expand your horizons so expand your network of people that you engage with go beyond the science community Um, probe your science colleagues for people outside of the for people that they know Um, just start talking to people and get a get a sense of what do they do what are nonprofits all about what what other opportunities might there be and recognize and I think this is probably kind of the hard thing but but I do think that with a little bit of thought that it becomes really clear that you recognize that the things that you learn as a graduate student and in the academic research um, world or as postdoc are very translatable into other uh, avenues, other careers. I don't necessarily mean that you have to go back to school, but you're obviously, you know, very independent in your lab. You're directing your own research. You're um, identifying problems. You're finding solutions. You're designing things. You are very creative. So use that. Think about what you actually are able to do. Think about the way that you interact with people, um, your experience in writing, your experience in presentations. I would say one very good uh, practical piece of advice is make sure you can write um doesn't have to be creative writing doesn't have to be a work of you know imaginative fiction but write clearly coherently succinctly make sure that you know how to talk about your work in ways that make sense to people because whatever avenue that you go into whether or not you're working with the general public or not you need to be able to express yourself communication is absolutely key as,
0: I, as i'm hearing you talking about your giving your advice to to students and postdocs out there, I'm putting myself in their shoes and I'm thinking, all oh, that's great, but how are you using your, your doctoral training, your graduate training in what you do today?
1: Some of the things that we just talked about. So for example, I think everybody who's in a graduate student lab, graduate, um, is a graduate student or a postdoc is, has done presentations, right? You have to do that all the time. I have to do that all the time. I'm presenting, either when I'm talking with my teams or I'm presenting to some leadership group here or to donors or to others, members, whatever it might be, I have to constantly give various kinds of presentations, knowing how to put that together, um, how to synthesize information, um, how to write, uh, how to research, Um, in my case, it's mostly research content. But the other thing is because I'm a trained scientist and I've been in science worlds for a long time, I've been able to, Uh, not only do exhibit projects that were in my sweet spot. So I came in here, I had come from a lab that did molecular genetic cell biology. I wasn't really a geneticist, but I knew a lot, you know, a fair amount. And then I figured out what don't I know? Who do I need to help me with that? And since then I've moved into fields like um, energy. We did an exhibit a few years ago. um, That's all about energy efficiency. So it was completely new thing for me, but because I didn't need to, understand every nuance. I didn't need to be the actual expert. I needed to know what I didn't know. I needed to know what kinds of questions to ask. That's what you're doing when you're a scientist, right? And I need to um, just try to tap into ideas, uh, creativity, solutions, open your mind. And again, that's that's also, and make sense of things, pull things together, synthesize a story in, in my case now. So I think there are lots of parallels. The other thing that, that I do quite a bit of is establishing partnerships uh, with a whole variety of STEM professionals, whether they be academic scientists or corporate scientists or um, other, other kinds of people that would be appropriate, you know, to involve in one of our projects.
0: Now, that, that's great. Again, you're using your doctoral training every single day in, in things oh, that, absolutely. In the, that you do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Patty, my last question. is is there a question that you think i should have asked you but i didn't
1: Mm. i think one of the questions and i don't have an answer but i think it's a question that anybody listening to this probably wants to ask themselves Um, and sometimes i have asked myself should i have tried to come to this conclusion earlier so i've run into uh, people that have left the academic community after they finished their graduate career they knew right then and And I think it is different, you know, these things evolve. I was still quite convinced when I was a graduate student uh, going into my postdoc that I was seeking an academic career. Um, Eventually, I think I'm just kind of person who likes to shift um, every now and then. And, And that's the beauty of this job, it's shifting constantly, so I don't need to make a major shift, you know. But I think that's something that would be useful for the graduate students and young, you know, early postdocs to think about, don't wait, um, maybe. Think, if you think you might be interested in something else and also try to get other experiences. So I did a little bit of teaching when I was a postdoc, try to get as many experiences as you can. Maybe the question to ask your audience is, ask yourselves, what in my environment could I possibly explore that I haven't?
0: That's a great point where, because there are so many resources at various institutions and not everybody knows that they have those resources and they need to seek those out and see what that can, uh, how that can help them learn more about the different career paths that are out there that require doctoral training and they have to use that every day.
1: That's right. And many universities now are doing the kinds of things that you're doing, which is making available a lot more resources for people to Considered to be inspired by other kinds of pathways,
0: and people can be, and people are happy. That's the the other important thing <laughs> right, to yes, point out yes, too. Yes,
1: there's happiness in academia and there's happiness outside of academia.
0: Well, that's great. I think that's a great point to to close on. And Patty, again, thank you so much for for participating today, and, and I think very helpful to our to our audience.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Patricia Ward, for sharing her story of the steps she took from earning her PhD degree in immunology to developing a passion for the creative interpretation of science as a director of the Museum of Science and Industry. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also. In addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. Join us next time on Pathways, as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences, which landed them in their current and very exciting non-academic position. I'm Randy Bretkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Bretkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.